For those who don't know me, my name is John Norris. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you guys. Now, Luke, did you say anything about the fact that there are little kids among us? I didn't hear your intro. Did you? You did. Okay, just to repeat, there are little kids here, which means, yeah, praise the Lord. That means there may be noises, squeals, squirming, and that's okay. It's okay. We should take as our attitude as a church when those things happen, when somebody screams all of a sudden in the middle of the sermon, rather than being annoyed, let's make it our aim as a church to pray for the spiritual benefit of that kiddo who's having to sit for an hour and pray for those parents who are probably mortified that their kid's screaming. Let's do that. Let's commit ourselves to being like that as a church. We are starting a new book tonight, which is really exciting, First Timothy. Before we do, I'll pray, and then I'll read our text. Father, thank you. It is good to be together. And we want to say at the outset that you are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy of all blessing, all honor, all glory, all dominion. For you were slain, and you ransomed for yourself people from every language, tribe, and tongue. And you have made us a kingdom of priests to our God. So we praise you and ask Jesus as Lord of all that you would have mercy on us tonight and help us to see your glory, please. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you've got a Bible, we're in the book of First Timothy. This is an introduction for the most part. We're going to look at the first two verses. First Timothy 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, we're entering into a new book, 1 Timothy, and it feels nice. It's good for us to talk about certain topics. We just finished a series on the church, and it was worth doing. Topical sermons are kind of like vitamins. They give you a boost when you need specific nutrients, but working through Bible passages, working through books of the Bible... That's our regular meal. That's our rice and chicken. You don't want to have vitamins for the rest of your life instead of your meals. They're good every once in a while. The last five weeks was worthwhile. It was good for us to talk about the church, but now it's time for us to eat some rice and chicken. First Timothy. Today we're in the first two verses. To give you an idea of what this whole book is about, we're going to start with an introduction to the book. And then we're going to look at what Paul calls God in these first two verses, the names that he calls God, and then we're going to look at what Paul wants God to give in these verses. So, introduction is the first thing we're doing. 
the names of God, that's our second section, and the gifts of God, that's our third section. So let's begin. Let's do a little introduction. Let's talk about this letter. What's going on? Who wrote it? Who would he write to? What's it for? In verse 1, you can see it's written by Paul. Now, Paul used to be a persecutor of the church. If you have a Bible, you don't have to look at any other books to see this. You can just look at verse 13 of the first chapter. Paul calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. He hated Christians. He hated their worship of Jesus. And he was there at the beginning, and he was ready and trying to cut this church down as soon as it started to grow. And you might think, buddy, Jesus is Lord of all. You mess with his church, Jesus is going to show up, Paul, and he's going to shred you to pieces. Well, Jesus does show up, but he doesn't shred Paul to pieces. He makes him an apostle. Do you see verse 1? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and Jesus our hope. This guy was trying to put down God's people. That's what he devoted his life to. And Jesus is a very kind king. He's a kind king. Are you too far off? Are you too dirty? Are you too shame-filled? Not for Jesus. Needy. That's what we are. And needy is the only kind of raw material this carpenter works with. It's the only kind he works with. That's our king. We just have to recognize it. Now, the word apostle, that word apostle, it can just mean a sent one. So a messenger, like a postman, the mailman, that's what an apostle can be. But it has a special use in the New Testament. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and many other people, and some of them he commissioned to be his apostles. And he gave them a a special authority to establish the church and to speak on his behalf with his authority. So this guy is like a mailman, but he's Jesus' personal messenger. That's what an apostle is. They spoke for Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, and 9 that he's the last of all the apostles. There aren't new apostles, not like this. They had the authority to speak for Jesus. So Paul, rather than being destroyed by Jesus, was commanded by Jesus to be his messenger and to speak with his authority. So when Paul is speaking to the church and to Timothy in this letter, he's speaking with the authority of Jesus. That's important to understand at the beginning. When when Paul says, listen, I'm an apostle commanded by God, He's telling Timothy and the church at Ephesus that he's not just writing because he has a creative itch that he needs to scratch. He's not just writing this letter because Paul has the need to express himself. 
That's not why he's doing it. He has been commanded by God and Jesus Christ to speak on Jesus' behalf. So when you read that, you come to these first two verses, you should listen up. You shouldn't be like, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by command. I don't know. I'm not sure. Paul's saying, no, I am a spokesperson for the risen Lord of the universe. That Lord who is this moment holding you together in your seat, his spokesman is speaking. So we should listen. That's who's writing, Paul. And he's writing to Timothy. You can see that in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. In the book of Acts, chapter 14, Paul preaches in a place called Lystra. You might remember Lystra because that's the place where Paul gets stoned. They drag him out of the city because they think he's dead. And he gets back up and walks into the city. And many people come to Christ there. And one of them was probably Timothy. Because Paul leaves Lystra and then a couple years later he comes back in Acts 16. And there's this young disciple there, Timothy. The text says the brothers speak well of him. And so Paul takes Timothy along to travel with him. He's younger than Paul. He's probably, by the time this letter is written, in his late 20s, early 30s. That's just doing the math from the dates in the book of Acts and the dating for this letter. Now, if you know anything about Timothy, if you've been around church for a while, we can talk about Timothy as though he was a timid, young, scared man. Because Paul says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. And he tells Timothy, listen, don't have a spirit of fear. So we can think Timothy's just this kind of scaredy, young boy. That's not the case. Timothy is Paul's right-hand man. He sends this guy into churches by himself to lead them after Paul leaves. He sends this man like he sends no one else to help raise up churches. He says that he has no one else like Timothy. That's Philippians chapter 2. He's a fellow preacher with Paul. Paul writes letters in the New Testament, and he includes Timothy as someone who the letters are from. And here he calls Timothy his true child in the faith. Now this is a parenthesis, but from what we know about Paul, he never had a family or children. And yet... He had children. Whether you are married or unmarried, divorced, widowed, alone in this country, God has made you to be fruitful and multiply by making disciples, and you can. Paul was not an incomplete person because he didn't have a wife or kids. He was one of the most fruitful people who's ever lived. Timothy is his child in the faith. Now, Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus. I mean, if you've got the text, you can just see that's verse 3. He sent Timothy to Ephesus to correct false teaching and to make sure that their faith leads to right living. So Paul knows that the truth, when it's believed in the way that it's supposed to be believed, leads to godly living. You can see in 1 Timothy 6... 
2 through 4. I'm going to read it, but if you've got a Bible, you can look at it. 1 Timothy 6, chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. This captures what Paul has sent Timothy to do here in Ephesus. Teach and urge these things, Timothy. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So Paul's telling Timothy, I want you to go and teach. I want you to teach sound doctrine, healthy truth that brings about godly living. Because there were apparently teachers in Ephesus who were teaching things that did not make people more like Jesus. That's a big concern for Paul. Teaching matters. Doctrine matters. If you put mud in your engine, it won't run. If you put false teaching in your heart, it won't run. Not towards godliness anyways. Listen, if you believe a lie about God... And let's just imagine the lie that you believe about God creates something that looks like worship. You, you, you hear this lie. You love it. You're, you look like you're praising God in real worship. That may be the case. But believing a lie won't fill you with the Holy Spirit. Only trusting the truth will fill a heart with the Holy Spirit. Only trusting truth can fill your engine with the Spirit of God. Remember that. Only trusting the truth. So this is important for Paul. This letter is about right teaching, creating godly living. Okay, let's talk about the names of God because Paul calls God, and I'm talking about God the Father and Jesus here, he calls them four things. You can just see this right in these two verses. God, our Savior, Christ Jesus, our hope, Verse 2, God the Father, Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, usually when Paul uses the word God, he's referring to the Father. And when he uses the word Lord, he's usually referring to Jesus. Now I say usually because sometimes he crosses them. He'll call the Father Lord and he'll call Jesus God. He does. Because Paul does believe that Jesus is eternal and divine and one with the Father. And yet he makes a distinction. Because though they are one together, eternal, divine, in their oneness, there is a distinction of persons. The Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father, even though they are both fully divine and eternal. They're different persons. Okay, so with that as a setup... Let's talk about what these four names mean. Because even though it looks like Paul just throws them out there, they're really important. You can say important things quickly. I mean, if I, after the service, if you've never met my wife and we come up to you and I say, hey, so good to see you. This is Caroline, my wife. Man, isn't it good to have the kiddos here and for us to be all together? I just told you something about Caroline that was really important. She's my wife. Now, I moved on quickly, but it's still really important. If I said, this is Caroline, she's the light of my world. And it's so good to see you guys. We're really glad you're here. I was saying something that I considered important, 
even though I said it quickly and moved on. Paul here is not just trying to sound religious in his greeting. I need a religious greeting. I'll say lots of things about God and his names. No, he means these things. And if we look at what he says about God and Jesus Christ, we can find out a lot about what is at the core of everything that Paul holds dear. So what does it mean that God is our Savior, Christ Jesus is our hope, God is the Father, and Christ Jesus is our Lord? Let's start with the ones in verse 2. God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord. You see that? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. God is a Father, not just of people. Because God's creator, it's usually the first thing that comes to our mind is, well, he he made everything, so we're all his children. He's the father of everything that exists. Even if no person was ever made, God would still be a father. He has always been a father to God the Son. They, along with the Holy Spirit, have always been. And the Father and the Son have related to each other for all eternity as Father and Son. That means before anything was made, the Father was relating to the Son like a father would, caring for Him, loving Him. And the Son was relating to the Father like a son would, listening to Him, honoring Him. That's important for understanding this member of the Trinity. He is a father. He was a father before any earthly fathers were ever made. And earthly fathers only exist because they are patterned after him. He is a father. Now, let's talk about Christ Jesus, the Lord. Okay, so we talked about the father and the son. The son became a man. Christ Jesus. And Paul here calls him Lord. That may not seem like a big deal, but the Old Testament almost always calls God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, Lord. Lord means ruler. Paul almost always calls Jesus Lord. Paul's saying this one God the Son, God become man, is ruler over all creation. That's what he's saying when he calls Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, here's one way that Jesus as Lord and God as Father relate to you. If you receive Jesus as your Lord, then his Father will become your Father. So if you receive Jesus as your Lord, then his Father will become your Father. That's John 1.12. But as many as received him, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you want a father like that? What was your dad like? You may not have known your dad, He maybe was not a great dad. Maybe he was. Good dads are made to take care of their kids. So, 
If the one who is all good and almighty is your father, then you are the richest son and daughter alive, the most blessed of all creation. If Jesus is Lord, your Lord, then God is your Father. There's more to it than that. Let's look at the names in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul calls God our Savior, and he calls Christ Jesus our hope. So what does it mean that God is our Savior and that Christ Jesus is our hope? Savior. Let's go back to the basics. You were born with a heart that does not love God. I don't say that because I knew you when you were born. I say that because the Scripture says that's true of you. You were born with a heart that does not love God. Your heart refused to enjoy God, refused to believe Him, refused to see that He is what you were made for. And so, rather than listen to Him and live your life for His glory with thankfulness, You've lived for your glory, and that's called sin. You've broken his law. You've hurt other people. You've messed up the world around you, and you've made God look like he didn't matter. Every one of you has done that. Everyone who's ever lived has done that. And God is just. He's just. And if God is just, then he must punish. We all love justice. We want to see justice done just so long as that justice doesn't come back and actually hurt us. God is just. He has to punish sin. And that means our sin must be punished. Your particular sin every one of them must be punished. Our rebellion is not small because God is so precious. That's what makes our sin so great. We should face His wrath, but He saves us from what we've done. He's a Savior. That's what Paul is saying here. Who among us could conquer our sin? Who in this room could pay the debt we owe? Who could rescue us from our predicament that we've rebelled and God the just must punish sin? Who could? He could. He sent his precious son that son that he's loved forever, his beloved son, his only son, for us. To be a man, a perfect man, Jesus never once sinned. He knew that God, his father, was the treasure of all the universe, and he lived that way every moment. But God so loved the world that he gave his son, that son, for us. Jesus was on the cross being punished as a sacrifice in your place. He's the payment for your particular sins. Your particular sins. He is the payment for them. 
so that whoever believes in him might have everlasting life. Do you believe him? Then God is your Savior. And Jesus is our hope. A hope, as the New Testament defines the word hope, doesn't mean something that you want, but you're not sure if you're going to get it. Like, I hope I get a good grade. I hope our team wins the match. I mean, in that way, we hope for things all the time that don't happen. You guys remember when COVID was going to last for two weeks? We all hoped it would last for two weeks, and here we are. I hoped I wouldn't be preaching in a mass tonight. You can hope for things that won't happen. I hope that KFC won't make me feel bad, but it does. That's the way we use hope now, but that's not the way the New Testament uses the word hope. When the New Testament talks about hope, it's talking about confidence in something that's going to happen in the future. It's a confidence, a trust that something will happen in the future. New Testament hope is not uncertain. New Testament hope is being sure that what God has promised for your future, that it will happen. That's what New Testament hope is. If you're a Christian, God has promised that if you believe in Him and what He's done for you through Jesus, you will be given glorified, everlasting life. That's not uncertain. It will happen. It's our hope. God has promised to supply you with everything you need to honor him. Matthew 6, Philippians 4. That's not up for grabs. It will happen. It's our hope. He'll do it. God has promised that there will be new mercies for you tomorrow. That's in the future, but it's certain. God has promised that he will always be with you. He has promised to give you his joy and his peace when you trust him. He has promised to fill you with the Holy Spirit when you ask him rightly. All those are promises for things in the future, and they are not uncertain. They will happen, and there's one reason they'll happen. Jesus. It's not your good works. It's not your good looks. It's not your job. It's not your financial bank account. It's not your skin color. It's not your parents' religion. It's not your influence. There is only one reason, and you dare not add to it, Jesus Christ. One reason that you can be sure that the good that God has promised will, will come to you, Jesus Christ. If God is your Father, then every single good thing that comes your way later tonight, tomorrow, next week, a year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 20,000 years from now, Every single good thing that comes your way is because Jesus Christ bought it. He bought it for you. His worth paid for all the grace that you don't deserve right now and for all eternity. He is your hope. You can trust that God will keep every one of his promises about giving you good for your future because they've already been paid for. 
When God helps you enjoy him later tonight, Jesus bought that gift for you. 2,000 years ago, but he bought that gift for you. When God allows you to enjoy friendship with another Christian, Jesus bought that for you. When God allows you to lead another person to him, Jesus bought that gift for you. When God gives you a glorified body, and he will, Jesus bought that for you. And in 20,000 years, when you are happier than you have ever been, looking out on the new heavens and the new earth, Jesus bought that for you. He is our hope. You do not have a single ounce of good in the future that is not a direct purchase of Jesus Christ. And because he's raised at the right hand of his father, someday you'll be with him. And until then, he will make sure that you get everything you need to enjoy him, the spring of all joy. He is our hope. And this ties into our last section, the gifts of God. Now, Paul mentions three things he wants God to give Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace. See that in verse 2? To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a blessing at the start of the letter. What that means is Paul is asking God the Father and Christ Jesus the Lord to give Timothy grace, mercy, and peace. So grace is when God gives you a gift you don't deserve. Mercy is when God is compassionate to you in spite of your sinfulness and your weakness. And peace is the experience of God's rest in your soul. Now, when we first turn to Christ, we receive all of these things from God. We receive grace. God gives us a gift. He says, you're righteous. Not with your own righteousness, but with his. That's a gift. That's grace. He gives us mercy when we first come to him. He forgives us of our sins and he takes our stone cold hearts and he makes them alive. And he gives us peace in that moment. We are no longer at war with God and we can rest in him. But if you're a Christian, God has, listen to this, he has more grace to give to you. He has more mercy to give to you. He has more peace than you already have right now to give to you. Paul is not asking God in verse 2 to, to give Timothy grace, mercy, and peace for the first time by saving him. Timothy's already saved. Paul is asking God to give Timothy more grace, even more mercy, and even more peace. God can give you more grace. He can give you more help that you don't deserve. God can give you more mercy and he can give you more peace in your soul. Do you want those things? I hope so. I hope you hunger for more grace than you have today. I hope you hunger for more mercy than you've received up to this point. And I hope you hunger to experience more peace in your soul from anxiety and the burdens of life. Draw near to Jesus our hope, and he will give them. Draw near to him and trust him. Listen, you can't get more forgiveness than you've already gotten. 
you can't get more into the family of God than you already are. But drawing near to God, you can receive more grace, more help, more mercy, more compassion, and more rest for your weary soul. So seek Him for it. Don't go anywhere else if you need help. If you need mercy, if you need rest for your soul, come to Jesus. He, He is our hope. And He is the direct purchase of every one of those good things for your future. So come to Him. As we begin this book, let's pray that God would do those things for us as we work through it. That He would give us more grace more mercy, more rest for our weary, anxious souls. That's why this book was written. So let's ask God to do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the living God. This is not just a story, a made-up story. And this isn't just something you did 2,000 years ago and then backed off. You are giving grace Every day, you are giving mercies new every morning. Your compassions never fail, and oh God, we need your peace. And we do not dare ask because of our goodness. We ask through Jesus because he is our hope. Oh, thank you, Father, for sending him. You're our Savior. You're our Father. And it's in his precious name, the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.